Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Ahmed Ghanim. I'm an internal medicine resident at Leahy Hospital Medical Center and a Cardio Nerds Academy fellow in House Jones, as in the legendary Dr. Edith Irby Jones. Welcome back to our seven-episode nuclear and complementary multimodality imaging series with Cleveland Clinic expert Dr. Wael Jabber and future imager Dr. Erika Hutt, as well as Brigham Imaging fellow Dr. Aldous Kinone. Check out episodes number 99, 101, and 102, in which we discuss the evaluation of coronary ischemia, coronary microvascular disease, and myocardial viability. In this fourth part, we learn about the multimodality evaluation of congenitally abnormal coronary anatomies, including anomalous coronaries and myocardial bridges. Stay tuned for future episodes where we will cover cardiac sarcoidosis, cardiac amyloidosis, and prosthetic valve infections. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardinals. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there's no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Before we dive in, I've got a special message for you all. In addition to being a doctor, a husband, a son, a cardinerd, I'm so proud to have recently become a father. Welcome, baby Zane. And a very special shout out to my wife, Menna, who did all the heavy lifting. I always knew how strong she is, but over the past few days since Zane was born, I realized that she's just a superhero. Friends, I can't tell you the profound impact my son has already had on me in just a few days since he was born on February 23rd. He reminded me about perspectives and priorities. So please, everyone, remember to make time for yourself and the people around you. Let's get back to our epic story. Telemachus, Odysseus's 20-year-old son, is quite aggravated by the steady stream of suitors constantly courting and annoying and bothering his mother. In the Cardiner's version of the story, while chasing away another suitor, Amphinomus, Telemachus suddenly collapses. Athena, goddess of wisdom, who's always looking out for him, finds him pulseless and promptly begins bystander CPR. He was found to be in VF arrest and was quickly cardioverted. The post-arrest EKG showed diffuse ST depressions, and coronary angiography revealed a long segment of LAD myocardial bridge, but no other abnormalities. Echo was negative for structural issues. My goodness, thank God Athena knew how to perform CPR and that he survived. But now we're left with a little bit of a conundrum. We know that myocardial bridges are fairly common, and some series have reported them to be between 5% in angiography up to 30% in autopsy series. And we know that the majority are benign, but some might be associated with symptoms of chest pain, acute coronary syndrome, arrhythmia, and sudden cardiac death. Since we don't have any other possible cause of his VF arrest, and we do have this LED myocardial bridge, I think we should take it seriously. So Hefe, how might nuclear imaging help us here in diagnosing and identifying if this is a pathologic finding? What, what a story. This is a very common situation. The idea about any of these non-atherosclerotic lesions leading to ischemia, we come across this scenario of myocardial bridge often or almost always is the LAD. 
or in cases of anomalous uh, coronary arteries. And the most common one is usually the RCA coming from the left coronary sinus. So in these scenarios, a couple of things we need to remember. So we're looking for mechanical compression that leads to ischemia. So mechanical compression of the coronary artery that leads to ischemia downstream from that coronary artery. So when we're looking at that, we have to immediately think about uh, not doing pharmacological stress testing with vasodilators because that's not what pharmacological stress testing with vasodilators was introduced to the literature or to the clinical practice to do. It was introduced to basically show differential enhancement on vasodilatation in vessels that are normal versus vessels that are atherosclerotic and therefore cannot respond to the vasodilator. In this instance, we're looking for mechanical compression. So to induce or reproduce that mechanical compression, we have to think about how we can do that in a clinical setting. We can do it by, let's say, doing a dobutamine echo where you increase contractility. By increasing contractility, you're hoping to reproduce the situation where that vessel gets compressed and therefore leads to ischemia. In echo, we'll look at that by a wall motion abnormality. Now, you can do it with the supine bike with echo. That's probably a, a good way of doing it, probably, because you will image at peak stress rather than what we do with stress treadmill echo where we're imaging post-peak. And in these young people, heart rate recovery is very quick. So you will uh, be at, let's say, 150, 160 heart rate. And then the minute you put them on the table to image them, they drop down quickly to 110. And you will never be able to pick up that ischemic issue with, with the uh, distal territory, at least. So you can do it with the supine bike because you can continue imaging throughout the exercise period. Dobutamine probably is another tool, although we don't use it often at our institution for that purpose. And the third way of thinking about it, besides the, the dobutamine, the supine bike, is to think about doing a stress nuclear. Now, the issue here, we found at our center that uh, the most probably helpful tool is to do a uh, PET on these patients. We're looking here for not huge amount of ischemia. We're looking for small amount of ischemia, and that very often can be difficult to see on SPECT imaging. So we have started doing that in about 2001, I think, when we first started doing some cases of anomalous coronary arteries as well as myocardial bridges. So to do that on a PET, what you need is to have access to ammonia because you're going to do treadmill PET. So with PET, what you can do is uh, PET ammonia, you can put the patient on the treadmill, inject them at rest first, of course, do the images at rest, put them on the treadmill, inject them at peak stress, and then you have time because different uh, than rubidium, you have some time, about 10 minutes or so, to get the patients back to the machine and image them. The half-life is much, much longer, about 10 times longer than rubidium. So you can uh, image real exercise PET. So you cannot do that with uh, rubidium because by the time you get the patient back on the table, the rubidium is already gone. That's if you have access to ammonia. If you don't have access to ammonia, you can do a dobutamine PET. So what you do is basically you put the patient on the camera in a supine position as usual in the normal standard. Uh, you inject rubidium and then you start the dobutamine. We use the same protocol we use for dobutamine echo in our lab. And then we try to simulate or uh, increase the contractility. And with that, uh, we've had a very good success, actually, at finding, uh, at least in the past uh, three, four years we've been doing this, uh, a dozen or so patients who are profoundly ischemic with that protocol. Because now you're imaging at peak stress, true peak stress, with dobutamine. You have time to image. You actually can assess the left ventricular function at rest. And at peak stress, which is another advantage of PET over SPECT, is you can actually image at peak stress versus with SPECT because you're imaging 
about 40 minutes, half an hour later after you inject patients with SPECT rather than imaging at peak stress. So these are the tools we use these days, at least at our center, for assessing patients who present with chest pain are, are found to have anomalous coronary arteries, specifically for the RCA. The CERC is never, ever, ever anomalous and causing problems, right? Although Aldo will agree with me on that. The second group we've been imaging is those patients with myocardial bridging. So looking at the use of Restress PET for anomalous coronary anatomy or myocardial bridging is still very similar to how we use Restress PET for atherosclerotic CAD in that we need a stress agent, uh, we need the tracer, we need image acquisition, and so on forth. Right? The basic concepts obviously are the same. But these abnormal coronary anatomies or, or bridges, the, the thing that makes them dangerous is not compared to atherosclerotic disease, you know, it's not the coronary steel type situation, right? So vasodilator stress, it's not going to invoke situations in which these abnormal anatomies cause problems, right? It's going to be in the a positive inotropic state, positive coronotropic state, when you can induce ischemia with this anatomy. And so as opposed to using vasodilators, we're using either dibutamine or uh, true exercise, and, and that'll impact the tracer we use in terms of the half-life. For rubidium, we need the, the stress agent to be active while rubidium is infusing because of the short half-life. With ammonia, we have a little bit more time. Is, is that all fair, Hafe? Absolutely. So this is, again, you hit all the right points. Beautiful summary. You need to replicate the scenario of how these things happen, which is mechanical compression of the coronary artery. You can do that with dobutamine or with a treadmill or with bike. You need an agent that is available for you to image the patient with a half-life that's significantly longer. So you can do a treadmill, or if it's short, you can do it with dobutamine right on the table. Perfect. Thank you. So Aldo, what is the role of coronary CTA here and what features indicate a higher risk of myocardial bridge? Absolutely, Erica. And, and, you know, I think coronary CTA is crucial in the assessment not only of, you know, myocardial bridges, but also anomalous coronaries. And just to kind of follow up on the normal course of the circumflex, uh, it's always benign just because it's easier to go behind the great vessels to reach the lateral wall. So it's never or almost never exposed to compression in between the vessels or in within the myocardium. So the course of those circs are for the most part regarded as benign because of that course. Compared to the, just say, the RCA in the left main that they can cross anteriorly and then the, the only way to cross the midline has to be in between the arteries or have to kind of dig deep into the myocardium. And that's when you run into trouble or when you have acute turns that can create kinking. And all those features are extremely important into trying to kind of estimate or try to assess the risk of either an anomalous course or in this case, we're talking about the myocardial bridges because you really want to know where the artery goes and how it goes, what's the course. And so you can just get an idea. You know, coronary CTA plays an essential role in first identifying the presence of, of myocardial bridges and also uh, anomalous coronaries and describe the course. Going back to the, or, you know, kind of now focusing a little bit more on the bridges, uh, we know there has been a kind of a great discrepancy between what the autopsy report have shown with about like 30% of patients having uh, one and what uh, we have from angiography 
data saying that, you know, it's just single digits, like, you know, four or five percent uh, of patient. And, and, and now we're seeing more and more. And if you get to kind of go to a reading session in, in cardiac CT and in coronary CTA, you're going to see that, you know, a, a good proportion of your patient up to a third of patient, you're going to see that there's a breach. It's fairly common. And I think some of the data is saying now that in up to 20 percent or so of patients, you are able to identify a, a breach by, by just by looking at. And, and I think how you reconcile this is that is basically the breaches that you're seeing in angiogram are breaches that you detect because you see the compression, you see systolic compression uh, of the vessel. And that's the only way you can see it because in angiography, you're only looking at the lumen. You don't know where that vessel is going. In contrast, you know, coronary CTA is telling you where the vessel is, irrespectively of uh, compression or not. So that's how what's kind of filling the gap in identifying those. And although has been long regarded as a benign thing, we, we are learning more and more that, you know, in a subset of this patient, these things might be relevant and they might come with either persistent chest pain with exertion. You can have these presence of NMI and with no, you know, with no CED or arrhythmia, sudden death, you know, a subgroup of them. So I think we recognize that this is an important concept uh, that needs to be evaluated. So uh, as we said, so most of these bridges affect the LADs, particularly in the mid to distal. They just dive in there, either into the myocardial wall of, of the left ventricle. Sometimes we see it in the right ventricle and just into the wall of the right ventricle. Sometimes there's like a intraluminal curse, which is you know, sometimes fun to see. And less often, you know, involve the, the RCA or the circumflex. There are some associations with some disease processes that you see more often, like, you know, and sometimes in ACM, hypertrophic gramopathy, you can see uh, kind of a little bit of an association as patient with, you know, a spontaneous coronary artery dissection and FMD. Sometimes they can have tortuous vessel and they have these kind of really uh, multifocal breaches that has been described as well. I think the important here is to identify and try to see out of these 20% of patients that have it, so who are the patients that you might get worried about and, and those that are kind of maybe just more kind of an incidental that so you don't want to just kind of bring too much attention to it. And I think that has to do with the depth of the breach and the length. And in filling that gap between the angiography and CT, so there has been some correlation. And then we know that those who cannot get the compression in angiography, and as, as a result, we think those are maybe more significant, are those that are like deeper. And usually we use a cutoff of around two millimeter in depth and in kind of a length of around 20 millimeter. But I think the important thing is the overall picture, you know, really deep into the muscle and in long segment it's obvious that it might be more compromised from compression. So those are kind of, in a simplistic terms, kind of what are the high-risk features. But coronary CTA can also help you with other things. Is the artery fully encased? Is the artery just partially touching? You can see if there's evidence of any atherosclerotic disease. So some of these folks, as you can imagine, the artery gets fixed into the myocardium at the segment of the bridge. But the segment that is out of the myocardium is a little more kind of a little free to move. So with cardiac motion translation and rotation, you're going to have a little bit of a kinking and, and a little bit of stress on that segment that is just in the transition. And that can lead to alterations in the endothelium. And, and, and these folks tend to have atherosclerosis as well. So I think coronary CTA can not only describe the curves, the potential features of risk, uh, but also assess for presence of atherosclerosis that I think is, is also important. And also, you know, the symptoms of this patient can be a, a combination of systolic compression, but as well, like, you know, a little bit of atherosclerosis in these patients. I think CTA is a great tool to kind of give you that information of, about anatomy, 
you know, only for the bridges for the anomalous coronaries. Sometimes it's really hard to put, uh, especially if you already know that this is there, and then you go ahead and just prove that it's significant by functional testing. And I think these tests are complementary. Uh, you find high-risk features, you have to go for a functional test, as we already described, and just prove that that's uh, significant. There's a lot of literature coming out in terms of trying to identify features of, of malignant curves by the use of the dobutamine PET and try to kind of replicate that in the CAT lab with, uh, you know, a IFR and, and, and trying to look with the compression rate with IV and try to see that's still kind of in the making, but it's going to be great to kind of get to know which of those folks are a higher risk. It's important to also look in CT. If you're, I mean, for the most part nowadays, when we do a coronary CTA, we try to minimize the phases of the cardiac cycle that we are acquiring the picture just because we're going to minimize radiation. We have achieved significant reduction in radiation these days. However, you can still do like a full cardiac cycle in a subset of patients that you are worried that might be uh, compression or kinking. Although it's not necessarily routinely done, but in a selected group of patients, you can say, well, I'm going to do the whole cardiac cycle. Uh, in full disclosure, we're doing this at rest. It's not that we're exercising the patient or stressing the patient, which will become very difficult to look at in CT because of the, you know, the temporal resolution. But at rest, you can see if there's any a suggestion that there might be a kinking in the proximal segment of the transition between the bridge and the free segment or on the distal. You can see if there's any significant compression of that vessel in systole that could be, again, put more information out there that can be used by the clinician and the team to assess how significant this might be. And, and this kind of apply also to kind of some of the anomalous courses. As well, you know, CT, once you decide that this patient just it has a malignant curse and, you know, has ischemia and we need to do something about it. I mean, surgical planning, you need to know where you're going to go for and, and how you're going to approach these and how you're going to, what you're going to do, you're going to do on roofing to try to liberate that artery from the uh, myocardium to prevent either the kinking or the compression or, or, or so forth. So CT provides you a, a visualization of, of the structures that is outstanding and, and can provide a roadmap for the surgeon to go in and know what's going to do and how it's going to do it and get excellent results. So I, I think that in this era, current CTA is, is essential in these folks. I just want to do kind of a make brief point about some of the assessment that has nothing to do with coronary CTA, but just kind of with the functional assessment that we're doing in the CAT lab with the FFR and IFR, just to make the point that when you do the total compression of the artery, if folks in the past say, oh, well, you know, I mean, only 50% of the flow happening in systole, most of the flow happening in diastole, so I mean, it's not going to be a big deal, but we're learning that some folks can be significant. And when you try to assess this functionally in the CAT lab with these kind of more experimental techniques in this particular setting with IFR and FFR, we know that we would do FFR to try to see you're doing an average of the pressure ratio throughout the cardiac cycle. And, and some of these folks can have an overshoot in the pressure in systole. And that can give you a kind of false negative result. And I think the, the gold standard nowadays is do IFR, which is you only get the diastolic phase and you kind of get rid of that issue of the overshoot and, and you have a higher sensitivity to detect functionally significant myocardial breach and this is part of an initiative that is, I think, is happening the, you know, right now with Dr. Gabriel at the Clemenland Clinic and try to pair some of the anatomic imaging of, of the coronary arteries, also PET, and try to replicate that in, in the lab with some of these techniques with IBIS and compression rate and, and, and IFR to try to eventually in the future come up with definite signs, both functionally for non-invasive imaging and CT that can guide the therapy of this patient in surgery. And I thought it was kind of really important to make a, a point, even though it's not necessarily related to CTA, but I think it's, it's, it's very cool and, and important to understand. 
Thanks, Aldo. And this, uh, these admirable coronary anatomies are really a great example of the value of multimodality imaging. We're not necessarily thinking, you know, should we do this test or that test? We're thinking, okay, we probably want to define anatomy and structure with a coronary CTA as well as understand the function with either dobutamine IFR or dobutamine PET. It really speaks to the power of coronary CTA cross-sectional imaging to better understand structure. And, you know, we can use some variety of settings for coronary anatomy, whether it's bridges or anomalous origins or coronary aneurysms. For uh, folks that want to dive in a little bit deeper, I'd refer you to episode 81 from MGH, where our fellow cardio nerds, Danny Papillas, Rachel Frank, and Kimar Brown talked beautifully about the case of uh, Alcapar, anomalous left coronary from the pulmonary artery, where you know the coronary CTA was essential in both understanding the anatomy as well as um, defining the surgical approach. Hefe, do you have any comments on the data that we're trying to understand right now in terms of how to assess these patients? You know, I think we have a protocol where we're speaking of multimodality imaging, getting multiple points of data for patients with bridges and anomalous coronaries and, and what we hope to understand from that information. So, yeah, uh, Aldo summarized most of the stuff we're doing very well. I think this is a, a field, again, that we don't have, as in most things we've talked about today, we don't have large series because these are rare things. Again, it's important to emphasize that most of these bridges are benign and do not require extensive and expensive evaluation. The protocol we have right now is a, mostly a clinical protocol. It's not a designed to be a research protocol, but we will have some answers from it. So we're assessing these patients who present for symptomatic evaluation. So we're not taking people off the streets and telling them, let's image them and figure out if they have coronary, let's say, a myocardial bridge or anomalous coronary, and then we're subjecting them to these tests. These are patients who present with some event, like your uh, patient here from ancient Greece who presented with uh, sudden death. You have patients with uh, chest pain during heavy exertion. So these are patients uh, who are now, because of the exquisite nature of CT, we can define these, you know, these lesions that we never saw on standard stress testing. So if you come to the ER in the past and you have chest pain, you're 28 years old, you do a regular stress test or you do a nuclear stress test or a stress echo, you're not going to see the anatomy. Because of the shift to doing early CT or anatomy definition on these patients, we're finding more and more of these lesions. Now, it is extremely important once you find them in a symptomatic setting then to decide uh, are these contributing to the symptoms or not. So we do right now, of course, invasive evaluation. We do, uh, as I described before, our dobutamine protocol for PET. Now, sometimes, and it's important to start with the least invasive to the most invasive or the least expensive to the most expensive, you can start, there's nothing that tells you that you cannot start with a regular uh, stress EKG on these patients. You can start with a regular stress EKG. After you have found out that these patients have, you know, a lesion that you need to address, and then if the EKG, the stress EKG is very abnormal. Like these patients, if they have ST depression, they drop the blood pressure, they have symptoms, I think you have an end point here. Uh, so you don't have to always start with a PET. You don't have to always start with an invasive uh, evaluation. You can start with a stress EKG on these patients. And if it's positive, it's very uh, worrisome. If it's negative, it's not that reassuring. Because again, with these patients, apparently they don't always get ischemic under all circumstances. So there are special cases when they get that. And this is where imaging uh, fits. That was such a great discussion about multimodality imaging to investigate for anomalous coronary arteries and myocardial bridges. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode in the series as we plunge into the amorphous world of cardiac amyloidosis.